0: Turn in the Holy Scriptures to Luke chapter 14. As we continue our series on 1 Corinthians 13, we've read that chapter several times, so tonight we will read another passage of Scripture that is closely connected with the idea of the text, Pride and Humility. So, we'll read Luke 14, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll turn and read our text in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Let us hear the word of God. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus, answering, spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go, and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden... Go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now we turn to First Corinthians 13. And we will read verse 4, and our text is the last portion of the verse. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Now our text, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Beloved in the Lord, to sharpen more and more our understanding of what true Christian love is, that chief of the fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit has begun contrasting love with its opposites. Verse 4 began with a positive statement of Love in action, love suffers long and is kind. And then the Spirit began its contrasting of love, beginning with one of its opposites, namely envy. Love is not envious. And now we come to the last two expressions of verse 4. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. And we consider these two things together because both of them, when put together, are A description of pride. That's what this last part of verse 4 is talking about. It is saying, true love is not proud. Pride is diametrically opposed to love. And so what we said last time about envy, that envy is a love blocker, that also applies to pride. Where, pl- where pride flourishes and where pride is expressed, love is blocked. Love cannot come to expression, cannot come to a healthy, full expression wherever there is pride that has taken root in the heart of a person. Few things are as powerful a blocker of love than pride. So as this chapter of the Word of God continues to instruct us in the beating heart, the core of the Christian life, namely walking the more excellent way, we do well to take heed to its instruction here as well concerning pride. The whole will of God is that we love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we are proud before Him, we are not loving Him with all our heart. Love toward God looks like this. Humility before Him. And the second great commandment is like unto the first. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. If you are lifted up in pride over your neighbor, you are not loving him. You are loving her. Love towards your neighbor
1: looks like this. Humility. Meekness. A spirit that is mild. And lowly toward them. That's the shape
0: of Christian love. So let's consider this last part of verse 4 tonight. Under the theme, love is not proud. We're going to start by looking at pride. Loveless pride. Then, love's humility. And finally, the comfort that we have in Christ. Loveless pride. That's what the text describes when it says, Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. What is pride? We have two words here that describe it. Vaunting and puffing up. And when you put these two together, you have a good picture of what pride is. We're going to start with the second word because it's the more basic. Puffed up. That describes the condition of one's heart when he is living in pride. And the word vaunteth, vaunteth not itself, describes the behavior of the person who has pride in their heart. And so we start with the second word. Pride is being puffed up in your heart and in your own head. And a word picture is seen clearly here, isn't it? You can use the example or the illustration of a balloon. What happens with a balloon? It gets puffed up. As you fill it, as you inflate it with air, that balloon swells. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what pride does to a person. Pride turns a person into a balloon. Pride puffs up a person. It puffs them up as they are filled with thoughts And estimations of themselves as important, as great, as better than others. And therefore, as entitled to receive a certain kind of treatment and respect. And even entitled to treat those other people around me as my lessers, as those who are beneath me. Because I am better. That's pride. Being puffed up, swollen like a balloon. This was a problem in Corinth. Corinth, the church of Corinth, had a pride problem. That's evident from the fact that this this word, this Greek word puffed up, it occurs seven times in the New Testament, and six of those seven times occur in 1 Corinthians. There was a pride problem in the church in Corinth. and As we've already observed in the course of this series, The problems in Corinth are not particular to Corinth, but they are problems that recur throughout the history of the church, thus instructive for us. Pride is being puffed up. But now, from that puffed up, that inflated heart and mind, flows comes proud behavior. And that's what the first word is getting at. Love vaunteth not itself. To vaunt means to brag, to boast, to promote yourself before and above others. And the word doesn't simply describe the person who brags with words about their achievements or their accomplishments, but it refers also to any kind of self-promoting, self-centered behavior. It describes the behavior of the person who is trying to put himself forward and put himself up, even if it means climbing upon the backs of his neighbor. It's the person who puts themselves forward and puts themselves up and pushes down the neighbor. It is... The kind of behavior which is characterized not only by showing off, by parading one's own abilities, possessions, or courting the attention, the recognition, the praise of other people. But it is the kind of behavior that degrades others. That treats them like they don't matter. Because I'm their better. That's pride. Pride. And so when you take these two words and you put them together, we can define pride more precisely this way. Pride is an arrogant attitude, a swollen, out-of-proportion view of yourself that leads you to think of and treat yourself as above others and which leads you to think of and to treat your neighbor as beneath you. In some way, pride is an arrogant attitude, a swollen, out-of-proportion view of yourself that leads you to think of and treat yourself as better and your neighbor as lesser. That's really where pride starts. When the seed of pride goes into the soil of the heart and begins germinating, it starts with a view of yourself that's out of proportion. The proud man thinks very highly of himself. Now make, make no mistake, it's not wrong to have a healthy value of oneself as a creature that is fearfully and wonderfully made by God. It is not wrong to have a healthy perspective of oneself, especially as a redeemed child of God, a new creature in Christ. That's proper. Indeed, the part that's often forgotten about, In the second great commandment is love thy neighbor as thyself. And though we're not going to get into what all that means right now, the point to see is there's a proper place for the love of self. And so when we say that pride is esteeming oneself very highly, we don't mean to say by that that we should despise and hate ourselves. But pride is a swollen, out of proportion view of oneself. The proud man doesn't just think and consider himself a creature of God that's fearfully and wonderfully made. Or a son or a daughter that has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And through the redemptive work of Christ has been given marvelous worth. But the proud man thinks of himself as quite something in and of himself, on account of who he is, on account of what he has, on account of something he's done, on account of some quality that he possesses, he lifts himself up. I'm a cut above him or her or that other person. I am more worthy. That's vaunting self, lifting self up over others. Or to use the illustration from Jesus' parable, it's the man who as he comes to the feast, looks for that chief room that is the most honorable seat at the table, and he immediately goes there because in his heart he thinks to himself, if anyone deserves that chair, it's me. Pride's swollen, out-of-proportion view of oneself, that's the starting point, inevitably breeds a low... And also out of proportion view of your neighbor. Pride loves to compare. Pride is always comparing. Pride loves to rank people. Me up here. Him right here. Him right here. That person way down here. As one's person becomes swollen and inflated like a balloon. Floats up to the top. And from the perch that that person has made for himself, he peers down with a condescending eye upon his neighbor down there. That out of proportion view of myself leads to an out of proportion view of my neighbor. So that I look down on him. And when I look down on him, what's going to come of that is I'm going to start treating him as beneath me. It breeds a certain contempt for the neighbor who just doesn't measure up to me and my standards and my achievements and who I am and my greatness and all the, re- all the rest. Pride looks down on the, wor- on the neighbor and says, that neighbor isn't worthy of my respect or my esteem. And so I'm going to treat him differently. And that leads really to one of the main manifestations of pride. You want to know what pride looks like? Pride in action. Vaunting oneself. It's treating your neighbor like they really don't matter. Or thinking you can treat them differently. Because they don't measure up to you. And that will manifest itself in various ways. In being dismissive. Contemptuous of their thoughts. Their feelings. Their perspectives. Their service. Their accomplishments. Because I'm up here. And they're down there. That's pride. So understanding the concept of pride, as taught to us in the two words of our text, let's make some applications here in the second half of the first point. By answering the question, how does this pride manifest itself? In my life, in our lives, how are we puffed up? Where do we feel the temptation and indeed succumb to the temptation to vaunt ourselves? Pride can have so many forms. And that's why we all do well to look at our own lives. Because pride will manifest itself in a peculiar way. According to my own pet sins. According to my own circumstances. According to my own vocation. Where I am and what I'm doing in this life. Pride will take on Its form according to my own life circumstances. We have to look at ourselves carefully. Because just like with envy, we're often blind to our own pride, are we not? We read Luke Luke 14 and we see these Pharisees vying with each other for the chief seats at the table. And we think to ourselves, wow, look at those proud men. Look how silly they are. Look how ridiculous they are. I'm not like that. Or am I? Or am I? Let's go through several ways that pride can manifest itself in our lives. Sometimes we can be blind to it. Start with one that's maybe more obvious. Works righteousness. What is works righteousness? Works righteousness is thinking, I indebt God to me by the good things I do. That's exalting oneself before God. It's saying, my works, my beliefs, my qualities give myself standing with God. Now before we all say, nope, that doesn't apply to me. Let's remember, while we might not hold to and advocate A theological works righteousness. Do we have a practical works righteousness. In the way we live. And the way we deal with other people. While we might not believe that my works. And my beliefs give me some sort of standing with God. We would say no. As we live out our lives. Do we find ourselves thinking that what I believe and what I have received from God makes me a cut above that one over there, that neighbor over here? Whether I have fought through it or not, Do I sense that in myself, that my works, my beliefs, my good Christian family, and all of these other things that we can think of, which are good gifts from God, that these things somehow make me a better person and a better Christian, and give me a seat that's a little bit up here, so that I can look down on those who do not have what I have. Or that unbelieving neighbor. You see, works righteousness is more than just an abstract theological position. Works righteousness can be an insidious lifestyle that can creep into our hearts and lives even while theologically we entirely say, no, no, we reject works righteousness. And there we have to be on our guard because pride, pride
1: Pride is a works righteousness thing.
0: Let us not be puffed up. Secondly, pride can manifest itself in this way. Men following. A party spirit. Contentiousness arising from a party spirit. We bring this up because Paul addresses this at the beginning of 1 Corinthians Particularly chapter 4. There he addresses the party spirit that existed in the church in Corinth. And in verse 6 of chapter 4 he gives this exhortation to the Corinthians. That ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. That no one of you be puffed up for one against another. You see what Paul is teaching there that often what is behind a party spirit is pride. When some in Corinth were saying, I'm of Paul. And others were saying, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. There was pride behind that. They were being puffed up in their adherence to a particular teacher. And being puffed up against each other. And out of their pride came contention and strife and wrangling. In pride, they began promoting their man. And undoubtedly, their promotion of their man... Led them to look down on those
1: who followed someone else. We're to beware of that. Often behind a party spirit is pride.
0: Third, pride in our gifts. And by gifts, we mean spiritual gifts. Could be anything that God gives us as a gift. Our wealth, our talents, our possessions, our character qualities, our good Christian home, fill in the blank. The gifts that God has given. Is it not easy to let these things puff us up like a balloon? So that we vaunt ourselves over others who are less gifted or differently gifted in the body of Christ? Here's where there's an interesting connection between pride and envy. Really, pride is envy flipped around. Envy despises your neighbor because he has something that you don't, but you want. Pride despises the neighbor because you have something that he doesn't. And in our sinful hearts, often pride and envy coexist. We envy Our superiors, so to speak. And we are proud over our inferiors. Now Paul addresses this pride that we can have in our gifts. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. These are powerful words that cut the legs out from under our pride. That put a nice good pinprick in the balloon. Of pride. Verse 7 of chapter 4. For who maketh thee to differ from one another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Paul's whole point is, everything you have is a gift of God. There's no ground upon which to boast or to be proud or to puff ourselves up so that we look down on others. Because all I have was given to me by God according to his wise and good purpose. And all that my neighbor has was given to God according to his wise and good purpose. When we become puffed up because of what we have, our gifts, so that we look down on the neighbor, what we're actually doing is despising God. And his sovereign and wise distribution of gifts. For he is the one who divideth severally according to his will. And So let's apply that personally.
1: Is there something in my life
0: that I'm proud of? Something that I, I look to. To find some of my personal satisfaction, worth, and value. Something that I think sets me apart from others. And does this thing lead me to have an out-of-proportion view of myself and an out-of-proportion view of my neighbor so that whether I acknowledge it or not, I'm a little bit better. That's the pride that this text calls us to mortify. Fourth way that pride manifests itself is a stubborn unwillingness to listen and to receive counsel from others who are wise. An unwillingness to listen and to learn is a form of vaunting oneself or boasting. Because when we refuse to listen, refuse to open our ears, when we refuse to heed and to receive counsel, what we're saying is, I'm all set. I don't need the wisdom of others. I don't need to take any other perspective but my own seriously because I know what's right. I am right and nothing's going to change that. That's the language of one puffed up. Pride. And that's contrary to God's design for the church. He's designed God's people to need one another. The the illustration of the body. The hand doesn't have eyeballs on it. The hand needs the eyes to see. How foolish it would be for the hand to exalt itself over the eye because the hand has its own particular abilities to grasp and to hold and to do all sorts of things while the eye can't do that. The hand needs the eye to see and so it is in the body of Christ. We ought to listen. We ought to learn. We ought to be open to the counsel of one another. We ought to not have a proud independent spirit but a recognition of our limitations and our need for one another. And that can be applied in so many areas of our lives. Can it not apply it to marriage? If you think you don't ever have to listen and learn from your spouse, you're becoming puffed up in a destructive way. One of the reasons God gives us a wife or a husband is because we don't have it all together. We don't know it all. And we need the counsel and the help and the advice and even the rebuke and correction of another person. That can be applied to our life in the church. We need to listen to one another. It can be applied to those of us whom God has put in office. Let us not be puffed up in such a way that we think we cannot learn from others, from members. Oh, we can and oh, we need to. Humble, not proud. Fifth, pride going along with refusing to listen. Pride also manifests itself in this way. A a refusal to look honestly at oneself. To acknowledge sin. To apologize for sin. To receive correction. That's pride. Because pride, puffed up, floating up here, looking down on everyone else, says, nobody down there has any right to say anything about me up here. I'm above and beyond the common lot. On a personal level... Is it not universally true that admitting wrong and apologizing to someone, though we know it's right up here, is one of the things that we are slowest and most resistant to doing? Sometimes it's like pulling teeth. There's a certain false comfort and security in being willfully blind about ourselves. It's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant to admit faults, to apologize when we've wronged someone. Pride bristles at that idea. Pride finds all different ways to try to avoid doing that excuses, minimizing the wrong I did, denying it, shifting the blame to someone else. But all of those are the devices that pride uses to keep itself puffed up. And there you see that, that pride is deceptive, pride is self delusion. The proud person who's puffed up like a balloon thinks he's something great. But just like a balloon is full of nothing but hot air, so too the proud man whose view of himself is completely out of proportion is vain. There's no substance to his pride. He's just as full of hot air as that balloon. So pride that refuses to acknowledge wrong is really living in denial of the gospel. Here's where our theology really needs to impress itself on the way that we live. As reformed Christians who believe the Bible, we confess the pervasive and deep sinfulness of our human nature. We confess the doctrine of total depravity. So why are we as a people so resistant and slow To acknowledge our sins and confess our wrongs to one another. There's a disconnect so often between the way we live and the truth we confess. Believing the sinfulness of the human race. Confessing that personally my sinfulness should lead us to be ready to confess our faults to one another. And not to try to pretend that we are better than what we are. But then the theology of the gospel, the gospel of gracious, free forgiveness. As Christians, we shouldn't fear to admit, yeah, I'm
1: wrong. Yeah, I did wrong. And I'm sorry. That's not losing face. That's the gospel. God forgives
0: our sins. For the sake of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be afraid to admit we're wrong. To confess our faults. Our God is a forgiving God. Who wipes away our guilt in the blood of Christ. Restores us. And that's the gospel that we're called to live out in dealing with one another too. As we confess our faults to one another. We pray for one another. That we may be healed. As we confess our faults to one another. We graciously extend forgiveness to one another. Our personal life. Our relationships. And so let us here too. See where we must put off our pride. If we find in ourselves a, a slowness. A resistance to admitting I'm wrong, or I've sinned, when we have. We need to see that for what it is. It's pride. It's pride. And what applies to us on a personal level applies to us on an ecclesiastical level. What's true individually should be true of churches as well. The calling of the text, for us as a congregation, for us as a denomination, is to be humble, ready and open about our faults, willing to admit them, willing to confess them, ready to acknowledge them, even apologize to anyone we have wronged. It applies to us as office bearers, whomever God has put in the office of elder, the office of pastor, the office of deacon. If we offend one of God's sheep, if we do them wrong because we're weak sinners, we don't have to save face. We don't have to try to make it seem as though we're above everyone else and we don't do anything wrong. No, but let us be humble, recognize, acknowledge it, confess it, apologize. That's that's living the gospel. And that gospel is to be lived individually, ecclesiastically, in office, out of office, everywhere. That's living the more excellent way. And so let let us reflect on that application personally, because this touches a sore spot of our human nature, doesn't it? Pride resists admitting wrong. But humility is quick to confess. Sixth, pride manifests itself as a judgmental attitude. A fault-finding spirit. Judging another rashly or harshly is a form of vaunting oneself. And often this goes very closely with a refusal to examine oneself and one's own sins breeds a judgmental attitude towards others. We can see all of their faults, all of their weaknesses, all of their sins. We can be quick to condemn them. Meanwhile, not seeing our own. That's a symptom of pride. The man who is puffed up like a balloon and has lifted himself way up here, he doesn't see any of his own faults, but from his vantage point, he looks down, down on everyone else and sees what's wrong with all of them. That's pride. Vaunting itself. Lastly. Pride can manifest itself. In disdaining. And refraining. From. Serving. Others. The proud man. Really doesn't like the idea of getting on his knees like Jesus did, with a towel and a bowl of water, and washing the the feet of the saints. Because he's up here, and they're down here. And so, the word comes to us, and asks us to think, is there a certain someone, who I find, or think, It's beneath me to serve him or her. Beneath my dignity. That's pride. Pride. Look at Jesus. Lord of all who washed his disciples feet. Jesus had every reason not to do that. And yet he did. He took upon himself the task of a servant. Now for us, in the body of Christ, there is none who is too lowly for me to serve, for you to serve. Because not one of us is above the others. We're down here with one another, called to minister to one another. Pride puffs us up, so we lift ourselves up over others. But humility says, no, I'm down here everyone else and I'm going to make myself the minister to those around me and so to wrap this up our consideration of pride we see do we not that pride is a loveless thing as pride puffs itself up as pride vaunteth itself pride manifests itself to be the opposite of true Christian love Love is that heartfelt desire, that committed pursuit of the true good of another person through the giving of self. Pride says, I don't care about that other person. In fact, I despise them for this reason. I seek myself because I'm better. I'm entitled to good. They're not. I'm worthy. They're not. Pride takes love and flips it on its head. And in that way, Pride militates against the heart of the gospel. Gospel of grace. That's the deadliness of pride. Pride was there at the very first sin. When Satan said to our first parents, thou shalt be as God. That That was Satan's sin. He had said, I shall be like the Most High. He lifted himself up in pride. And our first parents also lifted themselves up in pride. Pride is a basic, basic sin. The text puts its finger on that sin and says, See it in yourself? See it?
1: Repent. Turn.
0: Put it off. By the power of Christ. His spirit. And his word. And now. In place of loveless pride. Walk in love's humility. Love's humility. Love is humble. Lowly. Meek. How do we love one another? Here is one of the ways. By being humble humble. So now let's answer that question. What is humility? What is humility? It's the opposite of these two words. Vaunteth itself is puffed up. Humility is a healthy lowliness of mind. It's an in-proportion view of oneself. And that in-proportion view of oneself is given by the word of God. It is a healthy lowliness of mind. Which leads to a lowly and self-giving conduct towards other people. And this healthy lowliness of mind and this lowly self-giving conduct arises from faith's true knowledge of self and true knowledge of God. So just as pride began with an out of proportion view of self... Humility begins with a biblically informed, in-proportion view of myself. Humility begins with seeing myself as I truly am in light of God's word. And that's going to make me lowly-minded. That's the opposite of being puffed up. One who is puffed up is full of hot air like a balloon. He's filled with the thoughts Of his own greatness, his own importance. So that he lifts himself up and says, I'm better than the rest. Humility, lowliness of mind stays down here. It's not puffed up.
1: The humble man says, I'm no different than this neighbor.
0: This fellow believer in the church. And this unbeliever over here. The only difference I have with him is grace. The only difference is not to be found in me. But to be found in the sovereign grace of God. Unless I have no ground, no basis to lift myself up in pride over either of these neighbors. He has a gospel informed, lowly view of himself. Now understand, this lowly view of self is not a low view of self. Often when we speak of a low view of self, we speak of someone who has an unhealthy hatred or despising of themselves. And that goes against. That's contrary to That last part of the second great commandment. That we love our neighbors as ourselves. Humility is not hating ourselves. Despising ourselves. We are by the grace of God. Redeemed children. New creatures in Christ. Fearfully and wonderfully made. And fearfully and wonderfully remade by grace. Not a low view of self. But a lowly view. That is one that is in proportion. To what the Bible says about us. Whereas pride is delusional. Humility
1: is true. It's accurate
0: to reality. The humble person says, I'm nothing in myself. And the only reason I'm something is due to God's grace to me, an unworthy sinner. And so whereas the proud man who has an out of proportion view of himself then has a haughty and condescending view of his neighbor. The humble man who has an in proportion view of himself doesn't look at his neighbor as beneath him. But rather the humble man esteems his neighbor highly. The humble man purposely puts his neighbor before him. And even tries to lift his neighbor. It's the opposite of pride. Pride lifts self up over the neighbor so that I can look down on him and despise him. Humility lifts up the neighbor so that I may esteem him and serve him. That's Philippians 2 verse 3. Where Paul calls Individual believers calls the church collectively, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Their vain glory, that that has both the idea of being puffed up and vaunting oneself. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. There's love see how humility is an expression of love. Love is the committed pursuit of the neighbor's good. Even at my own expense. Esteeming other better than self. Putting them first. Lifting them up. That's what humility does with the neighbor. And so humility treats the neighbor as I wish to be treated. Humility takes the lower seat. At the table. Leaving the higher seat for the neighbor. Because humility. Wants to see the neighbor blessed. And humility delights in seeing the neighbor. Lifted up. That's a unique joy. That belongs to Christian love. Nothing else in the world is like it. True Christian love. Finds pleasure. In seeing another person. Blessed. Built up. So this humility, how does it come to expression? It's the expression of true love. You love God, you love your neighbor, by being humble. You think of a a riverbed. Humility is that riverbed. And the river that flows in that riverbed is love. Love can only flow in the bed of humility. Deep, lowly humility. Pride is like a dam that's put in that river and stops the flow. Humility is that deep riverbed in which love can course forward and reach its object. When God expresses his will to us and says, love me with all your heart, soul, strength. Says, love your neighbor as yourself. Part of that is, be humble. Be humble before me. Acknowledge your sinfulness. Then you will appreciate the magnitude of my graciousness to you. Know your own emptiness, and then you will find your fullness in Jesus Christ. When you're humble, then you will see your neighbor not as someone who doesn't matter, someone who is just a pain, someone who gets in your way, someone who isn't worth the time of day. But you'll see your neighbor as someone God has put there for you to bless. For you to use your gifts in some way or another to minister to them. When you're humble, you become the riverbed in which love flows, and reaches another, quenches dry ground. Or a thirsty mouth. Love that is humble deflates the balloon of one's ego properly, and that's good. Then you can be filled with something of substance. Pride only fills you with hot air. But when we're humble, then we feast on the real substance. Christ, what I have in Him, and the incomparable joys of reflecting Him by serving His people in love. When we're humble, then we have substance, not just hot air. Humility, instead of focusing on self, focuses and esteems the others. In the body of Christ and my neighbor, service becomes not a chore, but something delightful. Even service to the least of the brethren because it's service. To Christ. Pride never lets you serve that way. Pride says that person isn't worthy. Pride fills our minds with those kinds of thoughts. That person isn't worthy, but humility says, I'm unworthy, and yet God loved me, and so I'm going to love others the way God loved me, regardless of whether they seem worthy of it to me or not. Even if they're my enemies, even if they're a stranger, even if they're difficult to love. Humility opens up compassion. Pride shuts it up. The proud is hard-hearted, but humility softens the heart. And lets that love flow down its riverbed. Humility then is willing to listen, willing to learn, eager to receive counsel, glad to be corrected says, even the wounds of a friend, they are welcome. They are welcome. Humility is not swollen in self-righteousness. Humility will take a rebuke with grace. Humility will admit fault, acknowledge wrong, confess sin, apologize to the person that I have wronged. The humble flee day by day to the cross. Find forgiveness there at the cross. The proud don't have time for the cross because they don't think they need it. The humble man will gladly extend forgiveness to those who have wronged him because he knows God has given me such great forgiveness. That's love that vaunteth not itself and is not puffed up. But now let us conclude with the comfort that we have in Christ. Real comfort. And it's comfort that we need because this text pricks our heart. Or it should prick our heart if we're really letting it search us. Charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. That's not my portrait. But it is Christ's portrait. Remember, everything we look at in 1 Corinthians 13 while it is setting before us our calling, at the same time, it is giving us a picture of Christ. What we are called to be, but are so imperfect at, and only have a small beginning of in this life, Christ is perfectly. He is the one who loved with love that vaunted not itself. He was never puffed up. He was humble. And now, The humility of Christ. That was the riverbed of his love to us.
1: How did the
0: saving love of God come to you and me? In the riverbed of Christ's humiliation. Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, whom the angel Gabriel, when he announced, His coming birth to Mary called the son of the highest. He is the highest. Not because he's puffed up. But because that's who he is. And that's what he deserves. He is the son of the highest. He is lifted up. He is infinitely exalted above all that is called creature. He is under no obligation to come even a step down from his lofty estate. As the son of God. And yet this Christ humbled himself for us. And in the humbling of himself, he expresses his divine love in all of its fullness, saving love that reached down and lifted us up from the depths. Son of the highest humbled himself to the uttermost. That's the incarnation. God
1: became Man.
0: God became man. And God was born in the flesh. In Bethlehem's stable. Rejected of men. No room for him. Not in the palace of a king. But in a lowly manger.
1: He became a servant no reputation. Though the highest and chief seat is his, he took the lowest seat.
0: And as he lived and walked among us, never was there any pride in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only perfect humility.
1: And then he went to
0: the extreme humiliation of the cross of Calvary. The one who is without sin. Far above us. Came down so low. Put himself beneath us. Put himself beneath the burdens of our sin. So that he could carry that burden. And pay for that burden on the cross of Calvary. Suffering the extreme humiliation. Of making atonement for our sins. Giving himself into the hands of sinners. Suffering the outpouring of the wrath of God against the sins we have committed. There is the greatest act of humility. And the greatest act of humility is also the supreme act of love. In the deep riverbed of Christ's extreme humiliation comes the tidal wave of God's Unsurpassable saving love. Herein is the love of God, love that vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, but gives for the true good of the beloved. And when you are caught up in that rushing river of the love of God, There's nothing you can do but go in
1: the same direction. The
0: love of God. Refashions us after the image of Christ. So that we start to look like Christ's portrait as it's found here in the text. We are being conformed to his image. That we may love as he loved us. That we may put away our pride. Be humble. Does this humble you beloved? Are you humbled. By the magnitude of what Christ has done for you. Does it move you to humble repentance. As you see your pride. And as you look at. What Christ has done for you. Does it stir up your soul and drive you forward to worship and to praise this God. And to be resolved to walk in this more excellent way. Because there's nothing better in all the world than reflecting the face, the portrait, the glory of this Christ. Let us in humble love look around ourselves then. Look around and see these people in my life. How do I think of them? What do I think of them? How do I view them? God's calling. Humbly love them. Love that is not puffed up. and Vaunteth not itself. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this pointed word on pride and humility. This word humbles us because it shows us our pride. It shows us how much pride cleaves to us. Yet we find our comfort in thy forgiveness. And we find the power to walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ. We thank thee for his humility. In which thy love is expressed to us. Love that saves. Grant that we may more and more be conformed to his image that we may love one another as he loved us. We ask this all in his name. Amen.